Uh, as you guys know, at MacAv, we are excited to celebrate Christ, and uh, one of the things we hope that we model is that the gospel goes out in our community, and the Lord has blessed myself and Pastor Eric uh, with the role of, of caring for you all, but we are not the gatekeepers on the gospel. So we are excited to have church members uh, whether it be friends and partners of Mac that share the gospel or church members within Mac share the gospel. And so uh, Sam uh, is a brother. Amen. Sam, Sam. Whoop, whoop. So Sam and Sarah, uh, we love them dearly. My introduction typically is like showing you the connection between the individual. But you know, Sam. Uh, you, you know him well because he's doing life within the midst of this body. But there is something that we all want to gauge before a person would come up. Just because you're a part of the church doesn't mean you get to grab the mic, you know. And so we as pastors want to gauge the character of an individual. We want to gauge their passion for Christ. And he's in school now, moving towards becoming a pastor. Uh, but there have been markers of his character that Pastor Eric and I have seen even prior to him leaving uh, InterVarsity and pursuing his seminary, uh, his seminary aspirations. And so today, family, we get to celebrate one of our own uh, stepping out, uh, take, doing this thing that, that, that Pastor Eric and I do weekly. But even when I come before you guys, I'm nervous sometimes. So I'm asking you, even as you hear my brother speaking, be praying for him. You know, be praying that he'd be calmed, that the Lord would use him in a mighty way, and that uh, these words that he's prepared, uh, that God was in the midst of that as well. So we're going to pause for a second, pray for our brother, then you'll hear the scripture reading, and then Sam will be uh, encouraging us in Christ today. Let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful for Sarah and Sam. We're thankful for the ways that you've drawn them close to you. We're thankful, Lord, that you've allowed him to respond in obedience. And, Lord, each stage is just a little bit more obedience. First is becoming a believer. And then after getting his degree, he has many things he could have done. But he wanted to see people grow in you, Christ. And so he worked to be able to help college students uh, realize that you are Lord and King. And then help equip them to be able to live out that gospel. And now, Lord, he's in another season of life where he's uh, desiring to share the beauty of who you are with others. Guide his tongue. Calm his nerves. Let him know that he's in the midst of family. And that we want to see you celebrated, Christ. We want to celebrate our friend as well. So, Lord, would you use him today? In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading comes from Exodus 12, 29 through 51. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, 
and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks in their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had taken the Egyptians, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute. Of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And that very day, and on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. This is God's word. Hello, Mac family. It's good to be up here. Hi, everybody. So just a couple of uh, points of introduction. Uh, We've got Bibles going around. Uh, You can put your hand up if you want one. Um, And at Mac, um, if as we go through this passage, if you have a question that you think would be edifying for the whole body, feel free to put your hand up um, and I will do my best to answer it. It's more of a personal question. You can come speak with me or Leon or one of the elders afterwards. Uh, we'd be more than happy to, to address anything you guys have to bring up to us. So I want to recap just where we've been in Exodus because we've been doing Good Friday and Easter the last couple of Sundays. So the book of Exodus starts with the uh, people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, the people of God in slavery. Uh, They had previously been welcomed in Egypt uh, because of the work of Joseph, uh, one of the patriarchs of Israel. But uh, a new pharaoh, the king of Egypt, came to power, forgot what 
Joseph had done and put them into slavery for 400 years. Uh, about at the beginning of um, this book, after that, God revealed himself to Moses um, and to the, Egyptian, or to the Israelites in a, in a new way. He told them his name told Moses to go before Pharaoh and ask to be released so that they could go and worship God. Uh, Pharaoh said no, and that's kind of the main conflict in this story so far. Pharaoh kept saying no, and so God decided to try to change Pharaoh's mind by sending a bunch of plagues on Egypt. And today we're looking at the the tenth plague, which is also the final plague. So with that being said, I want to ask you all to think about if you guys have ever experienced a situation of uh, exponential grief. Um, And what I mean by that is a situation where grief just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Uh, Can you think of a situation where that happened in your life or in the world? I think that we all have a situation like that we can consider. So it might be different for all of us, but uh, 9-11 attacks could be that, uh, the Challenger explosion could be that, the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or JFK, it could be that. Uh, and I think what's interesting about those situations is that we probably didn't really personally know anybody involved in those situations, but when we heard about it, it was a national tragedy for us. We started to mourn, and the news spread. It spread, it spread quickly. Uh, I, I learned of, of a situation. Somebody asked me, hey, what's going on? Uh, why are you crying? I told them, and all of a sudden, they're, they're struck with the same thing. Then somebody else comes up and asks me or asks the other person, and it just grows and grows and grows. And this, is, this is the situation that was going on after the plague of the firstborn in Egypt. Uh, in the middle of the night, the Lord came and killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Uh, God was no respecter of, of person when this happened. Um, the son of the richest in in Egypt died, the pharaoh, and the son of the poorest person died. Uh, It didn't matter. As long as you were an Egyptian and had been persecuting the Israelites, your firstborn son was killed. How did the whole land of Egypt come to understand this, and how how did this wailing occur? So here's what I think probably happened. I don't have kids, but I was a kid, and I know many of you in here are parents, I know that we go um, as parents and sometimes go and check on our kids in the middle of the night. We want to make sure they're doing all right. So I think one Egyptian parent went to go check on their child, um, and they discovered that uh, their child was, was no longer breathing. Um, they discovered that uh, chest was not going up and down anymore. And what was, <laughs> what was the response to that? Um, that's the response. No, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> so in, in all seriousness, though, this was a really tragic situation. So in the ancient Near East, wailing was the preferred method of showing grief. And so wailing is not just crying. It's, it's crying and screaming, and it's, it's some of the worst sounds that you can imagine. And so when an Egyptian mother and father heard of this, or learned of their, their child's death, they started to wail. So their neighbor was woken up by the noise. So they were woken up in the middle of the night. They went to go check on their child, and they discovered the same thing, that their child was dead. And so this noise continued to grow as more and more Egyptians discovered the truth. Um, And as the text tells us, there was not a house in Egypt that didn't have somebody dead. And so 
I think I want us to just take a step back and imagine the worst noise from people that you can imagine and multiply that by, by a large amount. Think about uh, going to the big house um, at U of M, and instead of everybody cheering or booing, everybody is uh, screaming and crying as much as they can. Or the same thing at a large concert venue. That's what's going on here. If, if you were to walk into to Egypt in the middle of this, it would, it would probably be the worst noise you've ever heard in your life. And so this is, this is what is going on in the, hearts of the, or in the hearts and minds of the Egyptians. They don't have anybody to comfort them when this happens. Usually when uh, we have a death in the family, there's somebody who is not as affected by it that can help us through it. But they didn't have any shoulders to cry on. Everybody was in the same situation. It, was certainly, it certainly would have been a terrible terrible thing to hear, and it really demonstrated that they were a defeated people. So we really need to answer, why are these plagues happening? Why did it have to come to this? Uh, this terrible event happened because Pharaoh wouldn't listen to God. Pharaoh was disobedient to what the king of the universe had to say. And what Exodus has kind of set us up for so far is a um, a meeting, a matchup between God and Pharaoh. I think we've got a picture here. If we can get, the, get on the slide. There we go. So I, I don't watch UFC, but the, the, this is kind of what, what the writer um, of Exodus wants us to think. We've got God on one side and uh, Pharaoh on the other. And it's, it's a challenge of who's, who's going to win? Uh, God's going to win. That's right. God is going to win. <laughs> and so... This, this final thing is, God, is God's masterstroke. Pharaoh can't recover from this. Um, so, and and the, the reason for this conflict was Pharaoh's persecution and slavery of, of the Israelites. The beginning of the book, Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the, all of the sons in Israel, which, which he failed to do. And uh, God has now reciprocated with the, with the same gesture. Instead when we saw Pharaoh fail at the beginning, God has succeeded um, in showing that God can use Pharaoh's method and get, get much better results at the same time. I think that this, this really points to what I think the main point of this passage is, which is God shows his powers for his, uh, for his own purposes in moving forward salvation history. He calls all people to worship and obey him. So God originally wanted... Israel to be the light of the nations. And we're going to look a little bit more at that later. But God's plan to save the whole world was to have Israel free from Egypt, to go and worship him, to go and establish the land of Israel so that they could bless other people from that. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh was stopping God's purposes, and God needed to do something about that. So he did. God didn't just want the Israelites to worship. He also wanted the Egyptians to worship. He also wanted everybody else in the world to worship. Uh, but God denied uh, our Pharaoh denied the Israelites' ability to leave. And so God made a statement of his dominance saying, my purpose is dominate this world. You're not going to stop me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do with my people. And so ultimately, not just Pharaoh, but all of the Egyptians suffered because of Pharaoh's stubbornness. Uh, Pharaoh is finally a defeated king at the end of this plague. The next part of this story is the major turning point in the Exodus narrative because Pharaoh finally admits um, and shows that God is superior to him. 
He sees God's power um, and is utterly unable to fight back. So if we are thinking about the, the UFC uh, reference again, he's tapped out. He doesn't have anything left to give. He, he's kind of just rolled over and has accepted his fate at this point in time. Uh, verses 31 and 32 tell us that uh, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take also your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Also, bless me. So, to start off, Pharaoh's already lost face in this interaction. Uh, the last time that Pharaoh and Moses had a, had a face-off was in uh, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And Pharaoh had said that if he ever saw Moses again, he would kill Moses. Uh, that's not what happens here. Uh, it is, it's kind of amazing to see that Pharaoh would, would actually have the, have the wherewithal to summon Moses when he already knows that uh, he's, he's going to lose so much, so much uh, honor in this interaction. And so I think about if I were Moses and I was summoned by Pharaoh after uh, Pharaoh had originally said this to me, because Moses had already heard from God at the beginning of chapter 11, um, which, we, which we heard uh, three weeks ago, that this plague was going to happen, Pharaoh was going to summon Moses, and that Pharaoh was going to let the people go. So if I was Moses, I'd probably walk in there with quite a bit of swagger, because I know, I know what's going on here. Like, I have the upper hand. We don't, we don't know how Moses walks in, uh, but I think that we, we need to think about this. Because maybe he didn't walk in that way. Maybe he walked in sorrowful because it had to come to this. It had to come to the death of all of these people. But we, we really have to engage our own hearts here. I think that's, that's really what the text is, is, is wanting us to do. Because uh, we see Pharaoh and, the, Pharaoh and the Egyptians as the villain in this story. Um, you all know that kids are more honest about their feelings and what they're thinking than adults. So Sarah's class at school has been going through this. And... When, when this happened, all of her kids clapped and cheered. They, 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 they knew, oh, the bad, guys, the bad guys are done with. The good guys win. Um, and so I think that we're, we're that way too. Um, Pharaoh had the opportunity to let them go ten times, but he, he refused until the end. You know, Pharaoh was, was in the wrong here. The Egyptians were in the wrong. Um, and they get what they deserve as people that are disobedient to God. God's the one who meets out his punishment, but should we be rejoicing in their defeat? Where are our hearts really at here? Now, I, this is a question I have to ask myself. Um, I want to see the bad guys get what they deserve. And this is, you know, we're, we're all like this. We all have this sense of justice. And that's because we're all made in the image of God. And so even though we're broken people, sinful people, we have this desire for justice. And we want to see it play out. And usually we want to see it play out when, the ju- when we are the just people. Yes, my brother, what's your question? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I know that necessarily off the top of my head. But um, when it comes to, I guess, how, how we respond um, to God and, um, and what that looks like, all, all of the ways that we interact, I think, are based on... Um, how God originally wanted us to. So when we, when we seek justice, um, even if it's just for ourselves, um, that's using something God 
uh, that God has given us that's good, and we're, and we're perverting it. We're turning it on his head for our, for our own sake. And, I mean, and that can be the case for um, anything, right? So, you know, if, if it's greed, it's God wants us to have stuff, but he doesn't want us to have all the stuff. Um, and so when it, when it comes to this conflict, um, I think it's good to look at what's, what's underlying this. Like, what, what is redeemable in this situation, and how do we call out what's wrong um, with, with, our, with what we're doing? Does that, does that help to answer your question? Okay, great. So, like I was saying, uh, let me get back on track here. Um, it, 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 it's true that uh, the Egyptians deserved what they got. All of the plagues, they were disobedient to the, the powerful God, the only God, the only true God of the universe. And so I do want to affirm that God's right in defending his purposes in the world, um, that he is right in doing really whatever he wants because he is the only one that's truly good. Uh, but I think that this passage, as it makes us examine our hearts, um, it really helps us to see how truly evil we are, um, even when we say that we're on God's side. Uh, and I know that when I hear this, I don't want to think that I'm, I'm an evil person. I want to think I'm a good person that does, does some bad stuff. But uh, I think the Bible is really clear on this for us. And um, even though we personally may not rejoice in the death of another, I think that we can all see that we, we like it when somebody gets what's coming to them. Um, and we... Uh, are really happy to see other people thrown under the bus. So, you know, we can rejoice. I think this is apt with the political climate we're in. We rejoice when somebody on the other side of the political aisle, um, some candidate or something, does something stupid and gets castigated in the media. doesn't matter what side you're, you're on. That's, the, that's what happens, right? We rejoice in the movie when the good guy kills the bad guy. Uh, we rejoice when we hear that the Navy SEAL Team 6 has killed Osama bin Laden, the, the guy who, the biggest villain uh, to America. We definitely have evil hearts. I think 2 Peter 3 really speaks to this for us. Uh, It says, uh, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I think what this passage shows is that God judges on his time. It might not always happen immediately, uh, but God will judge righteously in the end. And he doesn't desire for the unrepentant to be killed. That's, that's not what he ultimately wants. What he wants is for the unrepentant to be repentant. He wants the unrepentant to have this opportunity to say, you know what, I, there's something wrong with me. I need the help from, from a powerful God because I can't do this on my own. Uh, and so this, this applies to the story. Pharaoh has to admit that, that he's in the wrong. He has to admit his sin. All of the Egyptian people have to do it. And at the end of the day, so do the Israelites. Um, when the Passover comes, the Israelites had to put uh, the blood on their door and their lentil. If they didn't, they would have been just the same as the rest of the Egyptians, and, and th- one of their sons would have died. So we're all in the same boat. Even though it seems like there's a dichotomy between the Israelites and the Egyptians, we're all in the same boat here. And so even though they were in bondage, they still were being sinful. They still weren't living up to God's standard. And so when I look at this, I think that uh, what we really need to see is, is God's justice, but also his mercy. God could have wiped out all of the Egyptians with, with just a snap of his fingers. It would have been over, and there wouldn't have been Egyptians anymore, and the Israelites could have just walked out, no problem. But in showing his power, 
um, in the way that he did. He gave the remaining Egyptians and all the Israelites the opportunity to worship him. So, and I think it goes further than this too, because um, we have to remember that at this time, the Israelites knew very little about God and how they were supposed to live. So the law hadn't been given yet. We're going to see that further on in Exodus. Uh, But at this time, uh, they did know a few things about how God wanted them to live because of uh, how God had revealed himself to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Jacob. So Abraham had been told by God um, that he and his descendants were supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations. Uh, And when we think about what does it mean to be um, a blessing to the nations, uh, I think that we we see this here um, when we see Pharaoh asking for a blessing in verse 32 um, that he wants from Moses. Pharaoh gets this blessing from Moses and ultimately this blessing from God, which is, which is meant to be um, something of life and something of uh, flourishing on, on this side of heaven. And so, as we, give me a second here. I'm losing my spot. So when Pharaoh expresses his desire um, to have a blessing, shows that he recognizes uh, God's power through Moses. Uh, and so, again, as we think about the conflict, Pharaoh considered himself a god. The Egyptian people considered, considered him a god. But if, if he really was god, he wouldn't be asking gods for other blessings. He would, have had, he would have been self-sufficient on his own. But he wasn't. So Pharaoh, um, now being beaten down as he is, finally has this opportunity to see his shortcomings. As God shows his power here, uh, I think we need to think about how this applies to us. The first step to following God is recognizing that, we're not, that we are not self-sufficient, that we need God's help, that we need help from other people in this room. One of the things I really appreciate about uh, Mac is that as we, as we share our prayer requests, uh, we're recognizing that we can't do it on our own. We're recognizing we need the community praying among us, um, that we need sometimes people to bring us meals. That, that, that's that's what, how God wants us to live. He wants us to um, be blessed by him and to be blessed by other people, and uh, for us to bless other people. And so the, there's, I think, two kind of ways that um, blessing and obedience go together here. So I think I'd say, like, the first order of blessing comes from God alone. So you can think of plenty of opportunity, or plenty of times in the Bible where God just does his thing, and God is the one that does the blessing. There's no human mediation at all. So we're going to see later in Exodus that the Israelites get manna from heaven. It's, it's raining bread, essentially. That's something that God does. We see it um, when the Israelites walk through the Red Sea. Um, they, the, the sea opens. That's not something a human can do. Uh, we see it with the, with the death of the firstborn as God sends his angel um, to um, do his purposes. But at the same time, that blessing is meant to, um, inside of God's people... Uh, produce a response. And that response is to love him and to be obedient to the things that he has said because you see his power, you see what he can do. And so as we think about being obedient as God's people, this is, this is um, what God wanted from the Israelites, that he would respond to the power that they had seen him, him do and that they would follow his commands and be this blessing to a nation. So 
that they would be able, to, even if they didn't exactly know what, what a blessing was yet and, and the law hadn't been given, people kind of knew what, what was good and what was bad. We, we all know this. And so we can think about for, that, for the Israelites and we can think about for ourselves, what, it, what does it look like um, to be a blessing to other people? Well, it looks like treating others how you want to be treated, right? It looks like giving people food when they're hungry, giving people clothes when they're naked. These are things that Jesus told us about. Um, and so these responses from God's people draw people that are outside of God to him. And so this obedience from people as God has given his blessings to them produces more and more worshipers of him that should also create an exponential effect of more and more believers. So I, I, I really want to encourage us to be obedient in, in this from what God has done for us. I think it's so easy for us to forget um, what God has done for us in the past. So moving on to this next section here. Um, this is starting in verse 35. Uh, it says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for the cl- and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they uh, let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So obedience remains an important theme here, um, and God ends up blessing the Israelites through their, their obedience to him. There's a big, big change in wealth that goes on. I kind of think of it as the 400 years of labor that the Israelites didn't get paid for, they're kind of getting paid for all in this one night. So if I had to summarize the Old Testament, um, I'd summarize it as the story of the Israelites who are frequently disobedient and the story of God who is uh, abounding in love and, and faithful and slow to anger in dealing with them. And so when we see them being obedient um, now, and we're going to see many episodes of the Israelites being obedient, and we, we've seen a couple and we're about to see a couple more, this is probably the, the peak for them in, in their national obedience. And that's, and, and th- I mean, this is probably the right time to do it. You know, you see, you see a bunch of plagues, you're like, I'm going to respond to that. So um, this, obe- this obedient, though, um, is important, be, is important um, because um, in doing this, they're, they're, they're being provided by God to continue to worship him. So obedience and worship go together, and they're always meant to, and they're always supposed to. So I want us to think about what, is obedience, what did obedience look like if we, if we were an Israelite in this? What would, what, would our, what would our response be to being obedient? I think there, there, there's a range, but I'm going to present two for us. The first is, uh, we, we know the Egyptians, they are, they, they are slave masters, but at the same time, they're people. And so they've just lost a loved one. God told me to go ask them for, for their money. Am I going to go or am I not? I'd probably feel pretty bad doing that. Or you could be uh, an Israelite that's big on vengeance, and you're like, well, they got what they deserve, so I'm not going to go and ask. I'm going to go in there and demand it, because they're scared of me, and they're going to give it to me. At the end of the day, we don't know, and we can all kind of put ourselves in the story and and, uh, pull this out um, of ourselves, but what we do know in the end is that they were obedient. They did go and do it. But I think that we we also want to think about what does the other side look like? So for the Egyptians, how would you feel if after you lost your firstborn son, Somebody comes, knocks on your door, and says, 
hey, can you give me a bunch of money, please? Also, my God did this to you. You wouldn't respond well. You wouldn't. Um, and so I think that uh, when we are engaging in obedience, we do need to think about where, where we are at, but also think about how people are going to respond. Because obedience isn't always easy, and it doesn't, isn't always comfortable. I want you guys to think of a time when you were called to be obedient by God, or you were, you were told to do something by somebody of authority in your life, but for some reason, you didn't want to do it. What was the underlying thought or the underlying feeling that prevented you from going to do that? I'm going to give you an example from my life. God, call, God has called me, he's called all, all Christians to go and make disciples. Uh, we're supposed to share our faith, we're supposed to share the gospel, let people know about God. So I did that professionally with InterVarsity, and uh, I really, almost every time I did it, felt awkward. I still feel awkward when I do it, uh, as somebody who's, who's being professionally trained as a minister. Uh, but at the same, you know, as, as I go out, I would, feel, I would feel awkward, I would feel like, oh, I'm not saying the right thing. This person doesn't really care what I have to say. I feel stupid. These, these, these are the reasons that prevent me from going and being obedient in this way, um, in this one example. But at the end of the day, being obedient is important because it spreads God's glory. In the end, he cares about what, how I respond. When I, when I go out to do this, I, I want to think about how somebody's going to respond, but, at the, but God's, God's in control of of anybody else that's, that's involved in our obedience. It's not, it's, it's not just about me, but I can only do what God has called me to do. So it doesn't matter what other people are thinking. So, you know, God, I've seen God use me in a small way over the course of my ministry life to, um, to change the world, and this is the case for all Christians. And I think that as we continue to be obedient, we will, we will continue to change the world. At the end of the day, God's the one who predisposes somebody to hear the message, though, too. And so that's what we see in the passage. The Egyptians give when the Israelites go knock on their door because, as the passage said, the Lord had given the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are ready to be generous because that's what God did. God predisposed their hearts to do that. The Israelites had nothing to do with it. They just went and, and were obedient, and God met them where they were at. I want to summarize the next section for us. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, so as we look at the next uh, big chunk of, of text, um, we can summarize it kind of by saying the Israelites leave Egypt. We don't know where Succoth or Ramses are uh, historically or archaeologically, but we know that they're, they're getting out while it getting's good. Um, we've seen that the Israelites have, have grown in their numbers significantly. Uh, they started in the land with 120. Now they've got 600,000 men, which probably is about 2 million, 3 million Israelites total. And we see that they uh, had been in the land for 430 years and that they're finally leaving. So I want us to focus on verses 40 and 41. Uh, and they say that they were in the land for 430 years. So I want us to remember that God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, 13, uh, that So this is God speaking to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So here, here's what probably happened. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, they went, the Israelites went to, um, they went to Egypt because Joseph brought them there. And 
they lived in peace and harmony for 30 years with the Egyptians. And then a new, new pharaoh came into power and noticed, hey, well, here's a, bunch of, here's a big opportunity to take advantage of these people, to build our buildings, uh, to get free labor. And that's what happened. So the Israelites are under slavery then for 400 years. And so that's why that 400 years and 430 years don't seem to match up. Uh, God, God, God knows the difference. God, uh, it's, it's not like a discrepancy in Scripture. It's, it's, it's reality, right? They didn't, they didn't start in slavery. Some, something happened um, that, made, that led to that. But why, why would God say to Abraham 600 years, well, say 200 years before they entered the land of Egypt, your, your people are going to be slaves? That's not, that's not what a grandpa wants to hear, you know, for his grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, right? That's not, that's not how they, he would want it to be. But Abraham takes it in stride um, and trusts the Lord. So I think that this points to the fact that we are bad motivators to worship. We are bad motivators to follow God. Eventually, the Israelites are going to come into the land of Canaan, which was, then gets called Israel, and they're going to remember a time when they didn't have any land at all. They're going to be free people, and they're going to remember a time when they were slaves. And so this, this period of 400 years really uh, gives them the opportunity to uh, have, have nothing. And so when they have something, they, there, there is no opportunity for them to say, we did this on our own. They, they, have to, they will have to remember that God did it. And so... This is, the Jews do this to this very day. This, this theme of remembrance is really important to the Jews to this, to this very day. So in their Passover ceremony, um, every, so this, this is followed in every household by every, every Jew. Um, in the ceremony, the youngest child, or the youngest child that is capable of reading or talking, uh, they, they, they ask this question. Why does this night differ from every other night? The dinner that night is conducted in a very different manner. They serve different food. There's different customs that occur. And even little children understand something's up here. Something, something different is happening. And the answer that is given by the adults uh, is, is given to us uh, in Exodus 13, 14. And the answer is, uh, this night is different from every other night because with the show of power, God, God brought us, the Israelites, the Jewish people, out of Egypt from the power of slavery. So this, this event probably happened around, say, 1500 B.C. So 3,500 years later, people are still looking back on this event. I mean, here's us in church, right? We're looking back on this event and seeing that God brought his people out with a mighty hand. To this day, um, well, this story has, has continued on because those small children became adults and had children of their own, and it went through the generations. And so even though most of us don't have any... Jewish heritage in this room, we can still look back on this and say, God, God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, and we need to worship him. How quickly it is that we forget what the Lord has done. Uh, the Lord knows the hearts of humankind, and he knows that if we stop paying attention to him, soon we slip more and more into depravity. I think that we can see this on a large scale um, if we look at the violence uh, in the 20th century. So... Uh, People have been killing people since the beginning of time, uh, unfortunately. But in the 20th century, we see um, governments killing their own people in numbers that uh, are unheard of. So in the 20th century, something between 100 and 130 million uh, people were killed 
um, by their own governments, and that's not even including numbers from World War I or World War II. And why, why is this happening? I think a major reason why this happens is because of the rise of an atheistic worldview, um, primarily spread by uh, the rise of communism. So I'm not necessarily saying up here that capitalism is better than communism, but communism has, has an official state policy that God doesn't exist. And so, you know, for most of history, even if people were not believing in, in the one true God, they believed that there were spiritual things going on, they believed that a God or gods existed, and that there was, there was somebody watching over them. And that, that controls your actions. That makes you act differently than if you think that... Uh, the natural world is all that there is. And so, you know, there is hope, I think, for the world. Uh, the uh, official atheist states are on the, uh, on the fall, and there is a rise in world religion, which is good. But at the same time, uh, we uh, need to really focus on, on only Jesus um, and on, on God. So, and as we see this happen on a large scale in the 20th century, we see it happen individually. Um, and we see, we see this, Pharaoh be an example of this. Um, after the Israelites leave, uh, about three day, days later, from what I've read, uh, Pharaoh says, oh, hey, all our, all our Israelites are gone. We're going to go get them back. So, so he goes with chariots to go and get them. And so it's only been three days since his son has died, since everybody else's sons have died. He's ready to go back and get, get his, uh, his slaves. He's forgotten what the Lord has done. So, I mean, he's an example of how quickly we really can forget the power of God. But, we're, but we are the same way. Uh, I th- you know, we can think about, like, what's a time when you were sick? Are you, are you healthy now? Well, God was there. Uh, did you ask for help and, and receive it? God was there. I think that... We can listen to the prayer cards, um, and it's, it shouldn't just be for this week um, or the course of, of the week. But, you know, 20 years from now, we can look back on all of these small prayer requests and say, God was faithful in this moment. Let's not, let's not forget those things, family. So moving into this next section, um, this is the final large section, verses 43 through 49. Uh, it deals with ways to celebrate the Passover, and in this is, is a lot of the same uh, from what we've been seeing. The Passover is to be celebrated by those who recognize God's power in saving them. So it is for the Israelites, but it's not just only for the Israelites. Uh, we can see that in verse 38 that a mixed multitude went out with the Israelites. So from the beginning, Israel was a, was a state that was not just ethnically Israel. There, there, were, there were outsiders inside of it. And once, they were, once outsiders were inside of it, they weren't outsiders anymore. The passage talks about foreigners and strangers and the, and the alien among you. Those, those words kind of stopped to mean something um, when, when, pe- when outsiders are coming in. Uh, they're not, they may not be Israelites, but they're, they're insiders at that point in time. The stipulations for following the Passover, um, if, if for, this is for Jews and for, and for those that are non-Jews, is circumcision of the male. So once that had happened, there was the opportunity to partake in the Passover feast. And one, in fact, is not an option. One has to if they're, if they're going to be part of the nation of Israel. 
They've seen God's power, and they, and they need to respond to it. Uh, and so it's an inclusive community letting anybody in that recognizes the power of God and decides they want to follow him. And so, as was set forth with ancient Israel, is true for the church today. I mean, we can look around the church and see we got people of a lot of different colors in here. Um, the thing that, that brings us together is not, you know, our ethnic background, but it's, it's recognizing that Jesus is Lord and putting our life under him. And so, at the same time, though, we are, we are an exclusive community, but uh, people, but we're open to anybody. So it's a, it, people choose to not be a part of this community. Just like the Passover um, is the Jews' most important holiday, uh, Easter and uh, Good Friday are Christians' most important holidays. That's how we remember what God has done. But we think about, like, how do we celebrate this every week? We think about communion. Communion is really important for Christians. We're going to do it here in a couple of minutes. And uh, I'm going to say it now, so maybe Leon doesn't have to say it later. But communion is only for those who recognize um, that Jesus is their Savior. Jesus tells us in uh, Luke 22, uh, when, when, he institutes the past, or when he institutes communion, he says, This is my body given for you. Do this, meaning take the elements in remembrance of me. When we take communion as Christians, we're remembering what God has done on the cross and, what, uh, and the power he showed when he was resurrected. So when we say it's only for Christians, we say that because by taking communion, we, we do remember. And so for anybody in here that wants to take communion today and is not a Christian, uh, all you have to say is that Jesus is your Lord and, and you are more than welcome to participate in this with us and celebrate with us. But it is, you know... you. There is an exclusive element because that because if you don't accept Jesus, it's just it's not for you. You don't you don't want to praise something, you don't want to celebrate something, you don't want to applaud something that you don't believe in. And taking communion says, I believe this. So for the Christians in the room, uh, I would ask um, as we as we uh, move to the end here, are you remembering what God has done for you? Are you do you remember? Um, and worship him for his faithfulness over the years. Uh, we can think about this in, in, in you know, large swaths that all Christians share, right? So, you know, are you, are you praising Jesus for his death on the resurrection for you personally, even though he also died for us corporately? Are you, are you praising him for uh, the resurrection? Are you, are you praising him that you have received the Holy Spirit? These are, these are things that we can praise Jesus for. We can also praise him individually uh, for the times that we were sick and were healed, or the times that he gave us, gave us a gift, uh, gave us something that, that we needed, and we can praise him for that. For those of you who are not Christians in the room, um, this passage shows that uh, God is powerful and that he's calling all people to worship him and follow him. So I'd ask you to consider, what, what is keeping you uh, from the communion table? What's keeping you from saying, God is powerful? Because he is. He is powerful, and he wants you to be on his side. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to respond in obedience. Uh, the only way that, that you can do that is with the power of Jesus. So I, w- I would pray that you, you ask Jesus to help you to live right and to follow him. So we close with the final verse. Um, I was only given to preach through verse 50, but we have 51 up there in um, what we read. So, so it closes with, 
all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. God has commanded, God has commanded humanity to obedience to him. Will you be obedient? Let us pray. Father, you are a God that, that does call us to obedience um, because of who you are and because of what you've done. I pray that we would be able to be obedient with the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would glorify yourself uh, through our actions, and that as we act, we would be able to point back to you and give you the glory. I pray that uh, we would remember what you've done for us and that we would, we would be able to see your hand in, in world history, in salvation history, and the fact that uh, ultimate obedience was shown by Jesus on the cross as he died. Help us, Lord, to follow you. Help us as we approach communion to take it in a, in a worthy manner that we would at the same time be able to mourn the fact that you had to die because we were so sinful and at the same time celebrate the fact that the resurrection comes after communion, that the resurrection comes after your death on the cross and that through your death there is new life for the believer and eternal life forever. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.